What's up everybody, GenX Dividend Investor here. In this video I discuss business development companies, master limited partnerships, and real estate investment trusts, all of which are investments which tend to pay more yield, though each has their own risks you need to be aware of. So if you aren't evil incarnate, then please hit the thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click that bell notification. Okay, this yield comparison graph by Guggenheim helps explain a big reason why some dividend investors like BDCs and MLPs and REITs. It's a few years old, but helps paint the relative picture. What we see is that the average BDC had an unbelievable 9.28% yield. MLPs were next at a still sky-high 7.2% yield. Then REITs are in the middle of the pack at an average 4.24% yield. And on the far right, we see that the SP500 average yield is the worst one at 1.98%. Today, the SP500 is even lower at an average yield of just 1.65%. Now, one nice thing about MLPs, BDCs, and REITs is that they can be what's called pass through entities under US tax code. You see, most corporate dividends earnings are taxed twice once when the earnings are booked, and again when you do your taxes. However, pass-through status allows an entity to avoid that double taxation since earnings are not taxed at the corporate level. You need to make sure that makes sense to you, so I'll elaborate. What normally happens is that a company sells a product or service and makes money on that sale, and then that money is taxed at the corporate level. You as a shareholder owner in the company don't directly feel that tax pain, but you indirectly are impacted because if your company has to pay out taxes, then your overall ownership assets are decreasing. Then if the company pays dividends, well, those dividend payments can incur income tax liabilities for the shareholders who receive them, even though the earnings that provided the cash to pay the dividends were already taxed at the corporate level. And that is called double taxation and is a reason why some people say dividends suck. But that double taxation basically doesn't happen to MLPs, BDCs, and REITs. That being said, dividends double taxation isn't necessarily hitting your pocketbook. I mean, if you hold the dividend stock in a retirement account, then you can normally avoid that second tax or at least defer it. And another way it's possible to avoid double tax penalties is under circumstances like mine where I don't make wage income and I'm married and so I can make over $100,000 a year in qualified dividends and no $0 in federal income taxes. That scenario is also true for capital gains in general though. Dividend haters minimize the fact that dividends give you cash now as opposed to maybe getting something in the future when you sell shares. Of course, you could always sell your shares and get cash now, which is their counter to my counter. Anyways, with that background out of the way, let's now dive into BDCs, aka business development companies, which generally have higher dividend yields, but also have more risk associated with them. BDCs make loans to, and investments in, smaller companies, many of which can be in some sort of financial distress and or are developing companies, and BDCs are known to take on debt for part of their investments, all of which tends to mean more risk. So BDCs make money by lending money to companies, and they make money by purchasing equity or bonds from the companies in their portfolio. Their goal is to generate income, as well as capital gains, when, and if, their investments are sold. BDCs are considered closed-end funds, which are a type of mutual fund that issues a fixed number of shares. So it's closed in the sense that no new shares will be created. Some people feel that closed-end funds are too risky because, in essence, they borrow money to invest in companies that may have borrowed too much themselves, which leads people to say that's more like gambling rather than investing. A somewhat popular but potentially risky closed-end fund is PIMCO Dynamic Income Fund, ticker PDI. It has a redonkulous 13% yield and pays out monthly, but also has 0% 5-year dividend growth rate and only 1 year of dividend growth recently. It has some investments in lower-grade corporate debt. 
but investors in PDI will point out that it's kept its dividend the same or increased it for over a decade, which is pretty amazing. However, its stock price has trended down over the last decade and is now about 20% cheaper than it was 10 years ago. Anyways, in contrast to closed-end funds or open-end funds, such as mutual funds and ETFs, which accept a constant flow of new investment capital, open-end funds issue new shares and buy back their own shares on demand. Now, when you're evaluating closed-end funds, you want to know if they're trading at a discount or a premium to its net asset value. Premium means you are paying more than the actual value of the fund's assets, and a discount is when you're paying a price that is lower than the actual value of the fund's assets. BDCs avoid paying corporate taxes by distributing at least 90% of their taxable income in the form of dividends. Due to this requirement, BDCs retain very little earnings and require raising external capital from debt and equity markets in order to grow. Okay, so a BDC invests money into smaller companies that are facing challenges to get back on track, smaller companies which sometimes can't even obtain financings through traditional means like bank loans or bond issues. These companies often have higher credit risk and thus have a higher risk of default, all of which means BDCs can see greater price declines in down markets. BDCs were created by Congress in 1980 to jumpstart America's economy, which was in the dumps at the time, so Congress targeted smaller struggling businesses that wanted to raise money to create jobs and grow. Because BDCs invest in higher-risk businesses, they can also charge higher interest rates on their loans and, in turn, provide attractive yields for investors. So inflationary environments and rising interest rates can actually be good for BDC earnings. Of course, as rates go up, it makes it more expensive for BDCs to borrow money, which can hinder their profit margins and ability to invest. When the economy is strong and markets are rising, BDCs leverage usage can help accelerate their returns but when the market is weak, then their debt often accelerates their losses. You need to dig into your BDC and see what sorts of loans they got and what their exposure is. Do they have more fixed rate stuff, which helps isolate things from changing interest rates, or do they have more floating rate terms, which then can either help or hurt them depending on how things change. Since BDCs often generate income based on their net interest margins, it means they can sometimes do better in a rising interest rate environment. BDCs tend to have lower trading volumes, which means less people are interested in buying and selling them, and it can mean higher bid-ask spreads. I personally tend to invest in high-volume stuff, so I'm comfortable using market orders when I trade, but if I went with BDCs then I'd use limit orders to minimize some risk. Okay, when BDCs pay out dividends, then some portion of that payment is usually treated as ordinary income, some as qualified dividends, and some as return of capital. Thus, some people prefer to own BDCs in retirement accounts rather than taxable accounts, to minimize having to deal with some tax complexities. But if you do own BDCs in taxable accounts, then I believe the first 20% of BDCs dividends are now tax deductible through 2025, under the new pass-through deduction Congress made in late 2017. Make sure to research all that on your own, as I don't own any BDCs and I'm not a tax guy. Now, BDCs come in many different varieties, including different industries they specialize in and different types of loans they make, and if they are internally or externally managed, all of which you should dig into if you want to invest. BDCs were very popular on YouTube a few years ago when I started my channel, probably because they had super high yield. Side note, many of those channels which used to talk about super high yield stuff seemingly don't create videos anymore. The companies I saw YouTubers pushing the most included Main Street Capital, ticker Main, which currently has a dividend yield of almost 7%, Gladstone Investment, ticker Gain, with the current yield of 6.5%, and Prospect Capital, ticker PSEC, with an almost 10% yield. Others with very high yields include Aries Capital, ticker ARCC, which has a dividend yield of over 9%, and Owl Rock Capital Corp, ORCC, which has a dividend yield of about 
Some of them pay monthly, some pay quarterly, and most of them often have no dividend growth. Here's a blurb I found on Motley Fool that was showing the breakdown of payouts for Main, PSEC, and ARC in 2010 through 2011. So for example, in 2010, PSEC's distributions were 62% ordinary income, 9% qualified dividends, and about 29% return of capital. Now, I might be too conservative to invest in BDCs, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't invest in them. I saw an article that said the BDCs have outperformed REITs from 2015 to 2021, so I wouldn't blindly discount them. Now let's talk about Master Limited Partnerships, aka MLPs, which are businesses where at least 90% of their revenues come from the exploration, production, or transportation of natural resources like oil, gas, and coal. They're a special structure that basically doesn't pay corporate taxes because they pass along nearly all of their profits to their investors in the form of distributions, which are like a special type of dividend. And MLP issues units instead of shares, and you can buy units like you can buy stocks. If you do invest in an MLP, then you become what's called a unit holding limited partner rather than a stockholder or shareholder. Partners pay income taxes on their portion of the MLP's earnings and may be able to use deductions, such as their MLP's depreciation, to reduce their MLP taxable income. A downside to MLP's is that due to their unique tax structure, it means that you unfortunately have to deal with a bit more complexity come tax time, aka you will need to use the K-1 form. Not a big deal, just an annoyance. MLPs often pay quarterly distributions like most dividend stocks, but a portion of the distributions can be treated as a return of capital. Return on capital in this case means that you don't pay income tax on all of your distribution dividend, and instead it lowers your cost base of your units. I read that over 80% of MLP distributions are often tax deferred. If you hold an MLP for long enough, then eventually your cost base can get to zero, which then means any future distributions are taxed as capital gains. A downside to MLPs is that you may have to pay state income taxes on your portion of income in each state in which the MLP operates. Another tax-related disadvantage of MLPs is that you cannot use a net loss in it to offset other income. But my understanding is that when you eventually sell all of your units, a net loss can then be used as a deduction against other income, and your distributions remain tax-deferred until you sell your units. MLPs are considered capital property, which I think means that they get a step-up in cost basis at death. This means whoever inherits the MLP's interest at the unit holder's death can use the MLP's total market value as of the date of death for the new basis. That's financially pretty sweet, because I think it means that your heirs could potentially have many additional years of less taxation implications, as the MLP's cost basis again is lowered from the time they inherit it. Anyways, I'm not a tax guy, so don't take what I said as accurate info, but it sounds pretty sexy to me. Now, it's generally recommended to hold MLP's in taxable accounts. You can hold an MLP in a retirement account, but then you may have to worry about unrelated business taxable income when it exceeds $1,000, and I'd put you to sleep if I explain what that is. TLDR is that there's nothing prohibiting investors from owning individual MLPs in tax-exempt accounts, but they could incur some taxes. Now, if you really wanted to own an MLP in a retirement account, then I'd consider owning an MLP ETF, as I don't think MLP ETFs trigger the UBTI UBIT issue. Anywho, a well-known MLP is Enterprise Products Partners, ticker EPD, which provides midstream energy services to producers and consumers of natural gas and etc. They have over a 7.3% yield and also have an amazing 22 consecutive years of dividend increases, so are quite popular amongst some in the dividend investing community. You can see it has a low 2.37% dividend CAGR. Another well-known MLP is Energy Transfer, ticker ET, which owns thousands of natural gas pipelines as well as some natural gas storage facilities and has a 7.7% yield, but they don't have any consecutive years of dividend increases. Anyways, I think MLPs tend to be safer than BDCs to invest in. One obvious risk to anything involved in oil and gas has to do with regulations and political issues, 
and of course their stock tends to be more correlated with oil and gas prices, which has its own pros and cons. Now, in order for MLPs to grow their cash flow and distributions, they often need to acquire more assets. And just like free cash flow is an important metric for many businesses, distributable cash flow is useful for MLPs, which is usually calculated as adjusted EBITDA minus maintenance. Another useful metric is the distribution coverage ratio, which is used to help determine how sustainable the distributions are, and you can calculate it by taking the distributable cash flow and dividing it by distributions paid to all partners. You want to see that ratio over 1, and ideally over 1.1, to really be sustainable. A distribution coverage ratio less than 1 means that things could be cut soon, which is no bueno. You can also take an MLP's distributions and divide that by its distributable cash flow over a period of time and you'll end at a payout ratio, where below 100% means the distribution is covered. Note, you don't want to use PEs for MLPs since they tend to be asset-heavy businesses with large depreciation and such charges, which ultimately reduce gap earnings and can artificially inflate PE ratios and EPSs. So some investors look at yield trends to determine if an MLP is undervalued relative to its historical trends. Of course, yield by itself is not too useful of a metric. But a firm's cash flow yield is often more interesting, which is the yield divided by the true payout ratio. Another statistic that might be useful to help value an MLP or cash flow multiples and trends. Okay, that's enough about MLPs. Now let's move on to real estate investment trusts, aka REITs, which are companies that own or finance income producing real estate across a range of property sectors. REITs allow people like you and I to invest in real estate without actually having to go out and buy, manage, or finance real property. That means you could invest in office spaces, apartment buildings, warehouses, malls, healthcare facilities, cell towers, hotels, etc. Okay, there are two main types of REITs. The most common REITs are called equity REITs, i.e. those that own and operate real estate, thus they lease space out and they collect rent, and they pay out at least 90% of their taxable income to shareholders. The other type of REITs are called mortgage REITs or M REITs, and they provide financing for income-producing real estate by purchasing or originating mortgages and mortgage-backed securities and earning income from the interest on those investments. I love equity REITs because they let me get cash flow from real estate without me having to deal with tenants or maintenance or worry about getting sued or whatever. And I love that stocks are instantly liquid, i.e. I can hit a button on my phone and sell immediately if I need to, something you can't do with physical real estate. And I'm not spending my time refinancing mortgages or stuff like that. But physical real estate does have better tax benefits, and you can often make better returns if you're willing to do more work for those returns. So don't think of it as REITs or real estate as you can always do both. A unique thing about equity REITs is that they can offer more potential stock appreciation compared to MLPs or BDCs. Like I read that over the last 25 years, 40% of real estate returns came from appreciation, whereas only 10% of MLP returns came from appreciation over the same time period. Now, equity REITs tend to be cyclical in nature and can be sensitive to recessions. But mortgage REITs are often considered riskier than many other investments, including equity REITs, because they face certain specific risks, including four main ones I'll call out from Motley Fool. Number one is interest rate risk. While changes in interest rates affect REITs overall, they have an even greater effect on M REITs because changes in short and long-term interest rates can affect net interest margins by increasing the cost of funding and reducing interest income. Interest rate changes can also affect the value of an MREIT's mortgage assets, impacting its net asset value and share price. Number two is prepayment risk. Mortgage borrowers can refinance their loans or sell the underlying real estate. When that happens, it forces the MREIT to reinvest the repaid loan proceeds in the current interest rate market, which might be lower than the rate on the existing mortgage. Number three is credit risk. Mortgage REITs focused on commercial mortgages can face credit risks if borrowers default. Mortgage REITs that focus on residential loans backed by government agencies don't have to worry about this nearly as much. 
And number four is rollover risk. Residential mortgage REITs tend to own long-term mortgages and mortgage-backed securities. However, they can fund these purchases with shorter duration borrowing since short-term interest rates are generally lower than long-term rates. This funding strategy creates rollover risk. The M-rate must obtain funding at attractive rates to roll over loans as they mature. Okay, now with that background out of the way, take a look at this view of real estate performance over five years, showing which areas did well or poorly, sorted from best performing on top to worst performing on bottom. So like in 2015, storage real estate did the best at 41% total return, followed by manufactured homes at 26%, etc., and the worst was hotels at minus 24%. Or in 2018, we see that net lease real estate was the best performing with 14% return, while the worst was timber real estate at minus 32% total return. Net lease requires the tenant to pay rent, plus some or all of the property expenses that normally would be paid by the property owner. A good question to ask is if we go into a lengthy recession, how bad will real estate be hit? That's a tough one to answer, as many things will be impacted, but we did learn a lot from 2008 and new things have been put in place so that hopefully we can deal with the recession better now than before. And as you probably know, using payout ratio for REITs doesn't really make sense since real estate often appreciates over time, amortization and depreciation influences a lower EPS artificially, and thus can make a REIT's payout ratio seem artificially high. Instead, we can use funds from operations, or FFO, to look at operating cash flow to gain insights into how safe their dividend is. Another commonly used metric is AFFO, or Adjusted Funds from Operations, which adjusts FFO with CAPEX. You can then look at the percentage of AFFO which is paid out as a dividend and use that as a correlation to payout ratio. I'm okay with AFFO ratios being a bit higher than normal payout ratios, because REITs are required by law to pay out the majority of their taxable income as dividends. Another metric some like to utilize when evaluating REITs is net asset value. If you're interested in more specifics on how to evaluate REITs, then I recommend you watch my Realty Income video where I explain things in more detail. Most REIT income is ordinary income, some of which can qualify for a 20% deduction under certain scenarios, and some can be capital gains and some can even be return of capital. I hold my REITs in retirement accounts so I don't have to deal with all that. But given the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it is now worth evaluating whether you want to hold REITs in taxable accounts. I'm long in a popular equity REIT called Realty Income, ticker O, which is a dividend to risk route that invests in triple net real estate focused on single tenants and has customers like 7-Eleven and Walgreens and Dollar General. They currently have a 4.65% yield, a low 3.89% five-year dividend growth rate, but have an awesome 25 consecutive years of dividend increases. They're also known as a monthly dividend payer. Another well-known equity REIT out there is Federal Realty Investment Trust, ticker FRT, that invests in shopping centers. They have a 4.3% yield, a 1.77% five-year dividend CAGR, but have an incredible 53 consecutive years of dividend increases. In terms of Emirates, a popular one on YouTube years ago was AGNC Investment Corp, ticker AGNC. They have a very high yield of 12.78%, a negative 6.17% five-year dividend growth rate, which means they've cut their dividend over the last five years, and thus have zero consecutive years of dividend growth. And that's often what you see with higher yield stuff, i.e. more risk, which usually means things like dividend cuts. Another M rate people sometimes mention is Arbor Realty Trust, ticker ABR. This one has 10.6% yield and a 16.8% five-year dividend growth rate and an okay eight consecutive years of dividend growth. Some people say that Arbor has a strong management team, but you should also dig into its high leverage and its liabilities versus asset trends, amongst other things. I'm too conservative for M rates, but again, just because I don't do something doesn't mean you can't do it. Having some riskier things in your portfolio can make sense, especially if you're younger, as with risk can come reward, but also risk often means more potential for loss. 
And that sums things up. So now I'd like to shout out my newest Patreon aristocrats who've signed up since my last video. As of the time I'm making this video, I only have one aristocrat spot left open and no king spots left. So first thank you goes out to T. Featherstone for signing up. Thank you, Michael B. Thank you, Jason G. Thank you, G-Man, for signing back up. And thank you, Override, for signing up for an entire year, which gives them a 10% discount. Aristocrats gain access to my dividend spreadsheet product that I use in my videos, and they gain access to multiple private channels on my dividend Discord chat server, where I let my upper tier Patreons watch my videos before I release them to the public, as well as let them vote on which thumbnails I use for my videos, and of course they get more direct access to me. If you made it this far in the video, then please hit the thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click that bell notification. Finally, I highly recommend that you join my free dividend Discord chat server, which has thousands of dividend investors on it and is growing all the time. Thanks for watching, stay positive, and I'll talk to you again real soon. I am not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I am only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments.